was basically a party in the country, in Santiago and other smaller cities. We need to keep in mind that this was a landslide victory where nearly 78% of the electorate body voted for the approval of a new constitution. Welcome back to episode three of Global Get Down. I'm your co-host, Nana. And I'm your co-host, Miguel. And in this episode, we'll be discussing Chile's recent civil protests, which culminated in a referendum, where on the 25th of October, the Chilean people voted in a landslide in favor of rewriting the 40-year-old constitution of the Pinochet era. Today, we're joined by Tomas and Professor Zerai and... Um, before we get into our discussion, do you guys mind giving us and our audience a bit of an introduction into who you guys are, where you guys are from, and uh, perhaps what interests you guys in this topic? So we can start with you, Tomas. Sure. Um, I'm Tomas, Tomas Cantor. I am a last semester student here at UBC of International Relations and Economics. Uh, in general, I'm very interested about Latin American politics, and so more so as a Chilean native, I'm currently in Santiago. Uh, and, you know, this is a, a topic that is shaping my everyday life. And I'm really happy to be here talking to everyone here today. So thank you. Um, hello, my name is Sarai. I am a doctor in political science and I'm an instructor at UBC. I teach um, comparative democratization and Latin American politics. I am Peruvian and I am living for this region. Okay, perfect. So... Now, moving into the first question. So the first question is for you, Zerai. Mm -hmm. So before we get into the recent referendum, do you mind giving us a bit of a brief introduction on uh, the political history from the Allende era leading into the Pinochet regime and then the more recent political developments? One of the things to understand, I think, what happens in, in Chile is to think about um, three type of uh, phenomena that uh, came together. Uh, political, economical, and issues of representation. So we can track this down to the government of Allende. Uh, Salvador Allende wants elections democratically in the 70s. And uh, his plan was the Chilean way to socialism, which is a way to say that this is a governance that privileges basically strong state presence, redistribution, support for national industry, and there was an emphasis on uh, equality. This government fostered policies uh, associated with that, with redistribution, such as land reform, um, welfare policies, labor rights, increase in wages. But a lot of this agenda clash with several interests, national and international interests. But what should be really understood is that this country will never become the basis of any other country. It's only the basis of Chile for Chile. So as a result, the period of... Um, 
Salvador Allende is characterized by a lot of uh, social conflict. Before the coup that he faced in 73, uh, Allende uh, faced a lot of demonstrations from the working sector, students, but also from the elites. Uh, just to uh, contextualize this briefly, this is the time where we also see the rise of a left wind and uh, communist governments in the region. So you can imagine that a project that looks to redistribute wealth and that puts a lot of emphasis on state presence and equality was seen by several uh, scholars or several politicians as a threat to an order, especially to the elites. So Balor Allende faces a military coup to take over uh, La Moneda, the government palace in Chile. And with this, we see the installment of a military regime led by uh, Pinochet. As far as politics are concerned, Chile will have to continue being what it has always been, a democratic, freedom-loving country, with freedom to worship, to think, to work. Not a normal democracy. It must be strong to repress anything which might try to destroy this idea of democracy. I want to put emphasis because I think it explains a lot the demands that we see now post Pinochet now with uh, the referendum. Uh, the government of Pinochet establishes a correlation between authoritarian military practices that put an emphasis in order to have progress. But with Pinochet, we also have the beginning of neoliberal policies in the region. Chile serves as sort of an experiment where um, you start seeing the implementation of neoliberal policies that uh, foster uh, restrictions in welfare, restrict uh, state spending, that privilege um, big capital and uh, conditions for investment. The result of this was basically that Chile went through uh, two particular phenomena. On the one hand, it had economic growth, stability. But on the other hand, that uh, process was accompanied by high levels of repression, not only against uh, left-wing activists or members of the opposition, but any type of citizen that will question authoritarian practices was victim of this. In Santiago, bodies floated in the currents of the Mapocho River each morning, victims of killings the night think, before. Uh, we have different estimates, but around like more than 2,000 people disappear. 36,000 people are show and said that they were victims of torture. And the number of deaths is incredible. Like some estimates said uh, 15,000, some others say 30,000. We can debate about that. The issue is that we see here uh, this trend, uh, economic stability, growth, neoliberal economy, but associated with a highly repressive government. The thing here is that at some point, and the government and the regime started to face issues of credibility, issues of contestation, uh, in the light of the many people killed, of course. No? So as a result of that, Pinochet calls for a referendum, uh, where the government asks for the continuity of the government. Pinochet uh, calls for this referendum because he was 
completely sure that he was going to win this referendum. The level of progress, economically speaking and institutionally speaking, make him feel the entire military regime very confident about the continuity of, of the regime. But luckily for, for Latin America, he lost this, uh, this regime to a coalition of left-wind, center, and any other democratic force in the country. And so after this, we see a period of what we called in Latin American literature a pact transition, which is also a key issue for Chile. This means that there was not really a revolution or there was not really a break in point. What happened was that the elites packed to have a peaceful transition to push uh, peacefully uh, Pinochet out of office. They negotiated several things in order to ensure that there was not this violent uh, event. What was part of this negotiation was, for example, that the military kept several of its rights. Uh, Pinochet was a senator for life. Most importantly, uh, Pinochet uh, reformed the entire constitution in the 80s, and that constitution continued to be in place. This meant that even after Chile transitioned to a democracy, the pillars of the political system, and I would argue also the economic system, remain the same. Chile made the transition to democracy having the exact same neoliberal system, having the same pillars of political representation that Pinochet put in place. And remember that in the name of order, in the name of progress, Pinochet limited a lot of participation and representation, right? Um, and the power of the military elites remained in place. Uh, they had two attempts of reform, first with Alwind, the first president after the authoritarian regime, but very limited. For example, they limited the terms of the number of years of the president in office. Um, but there was not much a lot done in terms of institutions. Why? Because the economic model worked. And they were convinced that as long as you had a stability, as long as you had economic growth, everything was okay. Chile, after that, had a government that uh, Lagos, Ricardo Lagos, that uh, was more progressive. And the expectation was that with Lagos, Chile can finally have more uh, reforms or that this government could address a certain key points of to break with the authoritarian past. But again, the reforms were limited to uh, decrease the number of years of the president in office, for example. When you look at the characteristics of the political class in Chile, you will see that most of the politicians have the same profile. Everybody looks the same. <laughs> All the political class, 85 of the congressmen, people in the legislative are men and come from wealthy families, have these fancy last names that I cannot pronounce. And this also meant that um, a lot of groups and a lot of the men's were left out. A lot of groups, women, students, indigenous people, the Mapuche First Nation could not be or could not see their interests represented in politics. What does this mean? It meant that in the next years, uh, the quality of democracy decreased a lot in Chile. 
several groups did not have representation, distrust in political institutions increase, and uh, while the economic model seemed to be working, in other words, there was macroeconomic growth, locally, it didn't work. It didn't work for middle class and low sectors. And the living cost increase, um, social rights are not provided, there is no strong welfare, and students have problems to access to high quality education. So the gap increase. I have the theory that the next generation after authoritarian regimes has troubles to confront the government. Why? Because they live under a period of fear. They are sons of authoritarian regimes. They are scared. They privilege always order. By contrast, the generation after that, or two generations after that, that born within a democratic system that have not lived uh, authoritarian regimes, grow and raise without that fear. And I think this explains why it has taken so long for Chile to have this movement. It took a long time since the 70s until 2019 to see a big movement challenging that. Demonstrations broke out in October against a metro fare hike and quickly grew into wider anger at the cost of living and inequality, reaging on into December. Power in Chile has to be redistributed, so it's not concentrated in the presidential palace, and ordinary citizens can play a leading role. And the role. challenge, I think, doesn't not only go to break with the legacy of Pinochet in his constitution, but it's also a challenge to a system. And I think this is why it's so interesting. And this is where we are now. Uh, Chile is, some people might argue, is starting the trend in Latin America in different, in different countries that we will never expect that to happen, including Peru, that right now is facing very similar revolts. This is, again, the criticism to break with an authoritarian past, but also to question the living conditions and the forms of uh, representation that we have in Latin America. Thank you. Uh, that was like a really extensive run down on Chile. Um, I don't know if Thomas, if you have any input. I think it briefly, briefly put what Sarai described is a time bomb. And it was a time bomb. And sooner or later, something like this was bound to happen. Um, and yeah, I think we can fit this event, what happened a year ago in, in Chile, within the, I'd say, the, the, the frame of Latin American countries bit shaking off their former, I'd say, neoliberal upbringing during the 80s and 70s. Mm -hmm. So just how momentous is was this or is this referendum for Chilean um, working class people, for the indigenous people? Um, what does the future hold now that this referendum um, uh, has... Uh, successfully uh, been achieved. Mm -hmm. um, could you uh, touch a little bit on that? Uh, yes. Wow. The expectations of this, this is the thing. When you break with a system, it is a moment of uh, um, satisfaction for breaking with this legacy, but it also brings really high expectations. Something that we can uh, discuss is, is the constitutional change enough to address all these demands? 
for minorities such as uh, indigenous uh, communities and also for, for women, there are high expectations around representation. For the working class, the expectations are around having a stronger welfare system, having strong uh, labor rights, uh, but we also have expectations from the average citizen, which has seen a very restrictive um, representational system. Even when Chile had uh, progressive governments, think about Lagos, uh, Michel Bachelet governed twice, even these progressive governments were not able to break uh, such a close and tight system. So the expectation for now is to be able to open that representation and change the priorities for the countries. Meaning that you can give more emphasis to inclusion, to representation, but also to think about different forms um, to improve uh, the development model. No? Yeah. So can I add on to that? So I, I 100% agree. Uh, this is extremely, it's, it's been a, a huge moment for Chilean history. Um, this happened October 24th, and it was a, basically a party in the country, in, in, in Santiago and in other smaller cities across the country. We need to keep in mind that this was a landslide mm -hmm. victory, where nearly 78% of the electorate body voted for the approval of a new constitution. Um, and it will be written under a an assembly that will be formed by newly elected um, members as opposed to being half newly elected, half members of the Congress already. Mm -hmm. So it's calling, in, in my opinion, it is calling for a blank new start of a, from scratch of a new constitution. Um, see, one of the main issues of debate, and, you know, a, a, a driver of change, really, of the old constitution is that Chile, you know, has a, a hyper-presidential system and that is the only way to put it, in my words. It is, say, for instance, the president is the only person who can initiate a, a tax and spending bill, for instance. The Congress cannot. So many faculties rest within the president, rest in La Moneda, right? The, the, the presidential palace, if you will. Um, the, the president, for instance, also determines what, what issues should be prioritized by the Congress. Or, you know, and we have, like in Canada, you have the provinces, in Chile, you have the regions. Regions have absolutely no faculties over, you know, the, the tax systems within the regions. So once again, a lot of power comes back to Santiago. And so we, we will, ex should be expecting a bit more I, I, uh, power shifting away from the president mm -hmm. to be distributed more equally across the other spheres. Um we we mm -hmm. I think in my opinion really the, the the call for a constitution just rested mainly. It was a call for dignity, it was a call for equality. And then again the, the debate begins once more, even between the people who voted for a new constitution. Well, where does the the the, the the room for change end and where does it begin in writing a new constitution? What can a constitution actually assure? in paper versus what goes beyond the realm of, of the written word and, and actually falls within the faculties of the government. Mm -hmm. And that that is certainly a, a very exciting period that we're living in. And many people are deeply, deeply afraid. 
uh, because many people fear. Um, mm. And I want to, I just want to, sh- I just want to share with you that if you look at the map of Santiago, which is nest right next to the Andes, and you see, it, it, we have these municipalities that divide Santiago. Apruebo, the movement for the new constitution, won by an overwhelming majority and a huge fraction of the city, except these four municipalities in northwestern Santiago, uh, Las Condes, Lorencia, Vitacura, Providencia, where these are very well-off um, neighborhoods. So when a year ago, when the, when the manifestations began, it began over a rise of 30 pesos in the, in the metro fair. And so the slogan was, no son 30 pesos, son 30 años. It wasn't 30 pesos, it was 30 years. And now the slogan was changed again. So it wasn't 30, you know, fueron 30 años, fueron tres comunas. It wasn't three, 30 years, it was three municipalities. Mm-hmm. This is a very interesting point. Just added to this, I was uh, showing in class that map and compare it to how people voted for the referendum to uh, end uh, Pinochet's term. And it's exactly the same neighborhoods, uh, wealthy neighborhoods in Santiago that opposed, uh, well, in that that at that time supported the continuity of Pinochet, the same ones that opposed to change the rules. And why would you want to change the rules of a system that works perfect for you? Obviously, it makes sense that uh, that uh, they will have that that choice. If you allow me, I want to bring us. I want to elaborate on something that uh, Thomas is saying about. I think the challenges of this of rewriting this, which is you you have the chance of a society to to rewrite the rules of the game, because bottom line, this is what a constitution is, just the rules of the game. And again, uh, the constitution should be a frame. It doesn't necessarily need to provide the solutions that comes with uh, whoever is ruling in the legislative and uh, the presidency and other social forces. But you establish with the constitution the, the frames and the priorities for, um, for a country. And so we have uh, big expectations, again, around representation. Um, there's, also the, uh, there's also the goal of broadening the base. So parties are already starting t- to add some changes, even, even t- before this uh, constitutional change. For instance, parties are, have agreed to uh, ensure parity, gender parity, to um, they arguing for more inclusion, uh, adding non-partisan guests to political parties. So this means that mobilization has worked beyond the constitution. It has pushed cl- um, all political parties to rethink how are they being accountable or how are they representing the interests of their constituency of society. But it also brings the question of uh, what Tomas is saying, you know, okay, we're changing and we're agreed that we need to change, but what way are we going to change? And how is this change going to look like? And is the constitution going to solve our, all our problems? I don't think that's the case. And this is probably going to be the source of contention for the next years. You cannot put all your expectations on the constitution. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think Miguel and I would also like to learn about the nature of these protests since it unfolded in 2019. Yeah. Just came and started shooting indiscriminately at people. We had to hide um, some reportings um, 
have said that uh, a couple of hundred protesters have been physically hurt by the government's military forces. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, Thomas, I know that you've been in um, Chile whilst the protests were unfolding. How were the reportings uh, different there compared to how the West was reporting it? So in 2019, I was actually in Vancouver. Uh, it was a very, very emotionally challenging period, I'd say, because there was so, it was such a big change happening in Chile and all my family and my friends were here and I was talking to them every day, every single day. And as I mentioned before, it began because there was a rice in, in the fair of the metro, right? And it wasn't the first rice of the year, I think it was the third, but it might be wrong, maybe the second or third. And then one of the ministers, I think, along the line, or some someone working for the government said, well, because, you know, there's a differentiated fee in the metro in Santiago where you pay a given fee in the peak hour and then you pay less early in the morning and late at night. And so the minister, this man in power, said, I don't remember his name. I should really, it's a very poor work on my half, on my behalf. What he said was essentially, well, if you complain about the fare, then wake up earlier and go to class or go to work earlier. And I think this example is extremely, extremely important because if we were to criticize the political elite in Chile, I think this goes beyond uh, the whether it whether we're talking about the right wing or the left wing. I think, all in all, the Chilean political elite reflects a deep, deep disconnection from Chilean reality. Uh and, you know, this translated during the manifestations as well. One of the biggest mistakes, in my opinion, of President Piñera's handling of the manifestations was when he claimed, word by word, that we were waging war, are waging war against a mysterious, pervasive enemy. So in doing so, he widened the gap between the government and the citizens. And essentially, in doing so, he turned citizens into the enemy of the state. And essentially, what that did is that that poured gasoline into the burning fire. And that is extremely problematic, in my point of view, because it sheds a light on the very same problem that brought us here in the very first place, which is a ruling system designed to benefit this one elite who is absolutely disconnected from the, the, the major source of the problem. So going back to, to your question, yes, according to the New York Times article of two, November 2018, there, were, there, there have been 285 people with severe eye trauma, and they're embodied by this 22-year-old man called Gustavo Gatica who lost both his eyes. Uh, then we have, as of November 2019, 6,300 arrests, 2,400 hospitalizations of civilians and an additional 1,000 police officers who also have been hospitalized. And the level of police brutality was uncommensurate and it was absolutely blown out of proportion. I remember calling my cousin, uh, and my, my, my siblings, my cousins, my dearest friends, everybody went to the manifestations. However, 
there was wide consensus that you wanted to stay as far away as you could because there were, well, not only tear gas, but also at a given point they were using rubber bullets and the rubber bullets were ricocheting. And many of them, of course, were blinding people, leaving them with severe uh, eye trauma. Can I add to that? This is, uh, it's uh, incredible. The similarities across the region are huge. This is also a legacy of authoritarian regimes. And uh, sometimes we think about the legacy in terms of physical things or uh, concrete manifestations of power or, you know, things in the constitutions. But I like to think of this also as informal institutions. So patterns of relation that then shape how state and society talk to each other or interact. So authoritarian regimes place this division. You're either with order and uh, legality or you are, you can call it a communist, a socialist, or in Peru they call it a terrorist because we don't like uh, sweet phrases. This is how they divide that up. And it worked uh, at a time. It worked uh, to uh, put, uh, to to justify the coup against a democratic government such as that of Allende, but it doesn't work anymore. And it has been used for a long time to silence any kind of uh, dissidence, any kind of opposition or criticism to governments. And I think the role of, Pin- of Pinochet, sorry, uh, Piñera, um, uh, as Tomas was saying, was key in repeating that pattern, you know, in signaling that whoever places a criticism to the system or this order uh, or this uh, uh, way to exert power is an enemy of the state. When, if anything, this just shows concern in an active civil society. But the issue, again, is that these labels do not work with us anymore. The generation that has uh, grown during democracy does not feel affected by this. And I think this is wonderful. It gives me a lot of hope for for our future generations. And I'm really happy to see that the legacy of Chile is extending everywhere else. So I'm actually going to skip ahead a bit to uh, like one of, the, one of the last questions, but it's something that Thomas and I were talking about earlier. And it's just about uh, this comparison mm-hmm. between like Piñera and the Pinochet regime. So for our audience members who don't know who Piñera is, Piñera is the current incumbent president, and he's a right-leaning leader, but in many regards, they differ. And Tomas and I were speaking about how the media has sensationalized this comparison between the two, and I just want to hear your takes on maybe some of the similarities, but also the differences in how they govern. I'm really interested, actually, in what Professor Sarai has to say and whether we agree or disagree. I want to begin, because I think this is a two-folded question, and I want to begin by by actually addressing um, the journalistic side of the question. I think, for one, that North American media, and I, I, I would leave, I tend to leave European media away, but North American media tends to offer a view of Latin America that, it, that at times comes at odds with reality, right? And I, I do see a level of romantici- roman- romanticizing, uh, for instance, violence, right? Say 54 subway stations in Santiago were burnt to the ground. And we're talking about a metro that has a daily ridership of 2.5 million people. That's nearly the size of all Vancouver, the inhabitants of Vancouver, right? Santiago has 7 million people. Now, I, I did hear quite often that 
the burning of the stations was a wonderful symbol of democracy, that it was the only way to get the message through. And whether or not they do have a point, I believe that in the end, as 2.5 million people rely on that transport method, you can't really romanticize it. Now, going back to the question of uh, Piñera as a counterpart of Pinochet, I think that is drastically blown out of proportion. I don't hesitate to say that I do not identify with Piñera. I have a great deal of issues with the way he has mandated. However, we're talking about a man, we're comparing a, a dictator who was in place for 20-something years versus a democratically oppressed, elected president who, by no mm-hmm. never did he try to stop the, the constitution referendum. So I don't really see the parallel in, in, in those particular aspects. I, I, I have uh, two, two things here. One is the coverage of the media and the other one is about the similarities between Pinochet and Piñera. I'm going to address the similarities <laughs> if, uh, uh, first. Um, uh, they, are, they are not the same, obviously. One is a dictator and the other one was democratically elected. But the role of Piñera <laughs> is the fact that um, uh, he and the... Um, traditional political class in Chile have resigned themselves to be the defenders of the status quo. And uh, Piñera fits into that profile. He opposed for a long time during his first term and during the second one, even in the light of the many protests, any type of change. So, of course, uh, Piñera is not a dictator, but... He is, as the establishment uh, themselves, uh, preservers and defenders of the status quo. And in doing that, it's just preserving the legacy of an authoritarian regime, or at least institutions of an authoritarian regime. The second thing about uh, media coverage, um, I actually have a different perception. I uh, see that uh, in Latin America, people say, oh, look, they painted this statue, all this... uh, a public park. Oh, they destroy a monument. Oh, the the stations. Forget about the ten thousand people who have been to uh, who are in hospital. Let's not touch infrastructure. So there is that thing, and uh, for a long time, Chile has had the idea of you know the golden kit is the only country that uh, that was growing, that had a stability, that had a, a consolidated democracy, and the neighbors could not uh, dislike uh, this more. The Peruvians hated that Chile was also this kid always put us an example, and that uh, model actually served or that image served to justify a lot of abuses and a lot of inequality within Chile. And I think media in Latin America has always also used the stability and the macroeconomic growth to uh, avoid looking at uh, issues affecting or impacting uh, lower sectors. Same with Western media. I think there is this fear about change or about uh, these uh, social movements. But in reality, I think uh, they are a really good sign of um, 
of uh, you know our civil society that for a long time was uh, uneducated or unaware or could not have the time or energy to be involved in politics so um, by contrast I, I, I really like this activism I think it speaks really well about the willingness of new generations to preserve a truly democratic system yeah I, it's just a tiny little addition to that I Yes, you're absolutely right, Professor Sadei. Um, the narrative of, of, of defending the status quo has existed and, and prevails, has prevailed between Pinochet, but the, also the, not only Pineda, but the ensuing precedents up to 2020. Um, I remember that only a couple of weeks before the manifestations began in October 2019, President Pineda referred to Chile as the oasis of South America. Mm, yeah, there are calls for you to resign, will you? No. Let me tell you something about Chile. 30 years ago, we recovered our democracy in an exemplary way. Since then, we have been able to reduce poverty from 65% to 8%, to reduce inequality, to multiply by five our per capita income. Chile was among the average of Latin America. Now, with hard work and strong institutions, we have been able to become the country with the highest per capita income and the highest human and that, development. And again, needs. only shows his deep blindness, right? His lack of vision. You know, he couldn't see what was happening before his eyes, right? In the middle of September, President Piñera was more concerned of planning the COP25 uh, meeting in Santiago that eventually was, was changed to Madrid. But it, it does, it does, it does essentially show this vision that, you know, everything is fine here. I'm not really concerned of what is happening in front of me. I'm really more concerned of showing the world that Chile is this, this beacon of light and stability and progress and economic growth mm-hmm. in the middle of South America, when in reality, it wasn't the case. I, I just, I know we have not much time left, but I would invite, I don't know, if Professor, I, I probably have read uh, 100 Years of Solitude, which is by far my favorite book by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And time and again, when these things happen, I, 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 I for me, it, it just like the cycle, we fall into the cycle of Latin America. But for one, I am very optimistic that there is a actual tangible possibility of growth and change really for the better in Chile. I have one question and it's related back to media. So I kind of experienced this in my own life because uh, my mom being Mexican and uh, just visiting her hometown or visiting Mexico in general, the the actual experience in Latin America is much different than what is uh, portrayed in American mainstream media or North American mainstream media, I should say. And uh, I just want to ask you guys if you guys have any news outlets that you guys would recommend for our English-speaking audience or any voices to pay attention to that give a more accurate depiction of what's actually going on in Latin America? Do you guys have any uh, um, recommendations? Tomas, do you do you know if Sipper has uh, content in English? I'm not sure, actually. I haven't. I've never. I don't think do so. it, done it. I've never gone into it in English. However, uh, this is pretty. Uh, this is a personal preference of mine. I like Deutsche Welle in English and TV uh, TV uh, TV Five Monde which is French. I like those in English. They're, they're English outlets. I think there's something very down to earth about their coverage of news. 
Uh, I think it's more factual, and, and I think you know, I, I think there's a process. This is, in, I know, in, in more in, in the broad terms, I think there's something quite sensationalistic about like outlets like CNN, for instance. I don't know, Professor Sarai, what do you what do you say? Uh, avoid mainstream media. Look for uh, alternative alternative channels. If they're all saying the same question that. If they're all answering, giving you the same answers for different problems, don't trust them. Look for uh, other sources and uh, try uh, try with alternative uh, um, outlets. No? I would I would invite everyone to read Latin American literature. I think there's a lot of our current problems that have been touched before by authors like Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Mario Vargas Llosa. Um, Isabel Allende that you know repeat themselves throughout the decades and they offer a wonderful window into the nature of our problems in the present in the past and, and likely in the future yeah that's something I wanted to ask as well um, because this is not just a one-time uh, special unique incident we continue to witness you know extreme resilience amongst not only the Chilean people but all across South America, where people are taking the streets in Chile, Colombia, Ecuador to protest, whether it's U.S. imperialism, inequality, far-right regimes, or neoliberal policies. So how would you describe the current political climate in South America? And are you optimistic or pessimistic about uh, the future for South America? Uh, well... We cannot um, we cannot attribute the same we cannot grant the same reasons or causes for all the mobilizations that we see happening. For example, we had mobilizations against Bolsonaro and even the election of Bolsonaro in Brazil. I think that's where these uh, movements started. Movements that are characterized by the presence of a lot of young people. Uh, then we also had an indigenous um, indigenous protest in Ecuador. Um, and then it was Chile, and then we had Bolivia with uh, uh, also massive protests, uh, first against the fourth re-election of Evo Morales, and then against um, against uh, a fascist government. And now we have the same in Peru. Um, now in Peru, we have protests very similar to Chile. I think, uh, although they answer to different causes, they have some similarities, especially I would say that the case of Peru and Chile and recent protests in Colombia are, are very close. Why? Because these are cases, Colombia, Peru and Chile, that didn't have or didn't do what we called um, in the region the left turn. They didn't have any progressive government that could actually foster strong changes. Uh, Chile had Bachelet twice, but even even her was she, she belonged to an all political class. It was very difficult to uh, get changes done or uh, get things done. So these countries uh, didn't have any process of openness for representation of new sectors and new demands. And I think the protests that we see in the three countries are associated with those kind of demands. The same in Peru. Right now, the last week was full of protests, mainly organized by the young people through social media, and they point at that. Yes, there is always a trigger point. In our case, in Peru, is corruption. 
But when you examine the demands, you see that there is a high discontent for the status quo, for not addressing uh, demands, labor rights, for not granted education, and uh, many continuities that uh, have been, again, concealed for a long time, that hidden for a long time in the name of growth or during the, the economic the economic boom. I, I cannot emphasize this um, more, but... Um, to me, it is uh, really happy. It is really nice to see these movements coming from different groups. I was really happy to see the presence and the activism of the Mapuche people, for instance, in Chile, because their voice has been silent for a long time. Uh, the same for the case of Peru right now. I think it's one of the first cases where I see open activism from uh, LGBTQ groups and for people under 25, people that we thought that only watch TV and play video games. And they have more political consciousness than anybody else, even the people in Congress. So, and in Colombia, where repression is really high, where their stakes are really high, we start seeing that at the local level, but there is a lot of mobilization in defense of the environment and in the in defense of social leaders. So this speaks about, I think, one, the exhaustion of a development model and the exhaustion of a particular model of representation. But it also speaks about a new generation that is growing without fears or that is looking for um, more. We're out here after a long break because of the pandemic. I'm a student and we need to show that we're still willing to fight for our rights. I feel 100% identified with what Professor Sarei said. This manifestations in the past year, they've included the Mapuche Nation, other ethnic minorities, they've have included sexual minorities, they've have included high schoolers, but also old people, people in the people well over 70. Uh, they've included people of, they've been quite, quite, quite heterogeneous in their composition. And I think that, and the fact, as I mentioned before, that the approval of a new referendum of a new constitution won by 78% speaks by itself. Hmm, yes. Can I add something else? I just wanted to say something that I uh, always like to mention. Is Latin America or is the global South giving some uh, civil society lessons to the North? Because I think that should be that should be put into the table, no bring to the table. I, I grew up with a lot of literature that tells me that I have to copy and uh, imitate and look forward to look like England. Um, but I actually think that this uh, activism also reflects that the South can place or give lessons of civil society um, and an active uh, uh, society to the north, where we see a declining uh, activism. Of course, there have been recent events that have triggered activism, like we just saw in the election of Trump. But generally speaking, when we talk about all democracies, they have an issue, declining voter turnout, uh, less activism, less uh, involvement or engagement in political parties. And what's happening right now in Latin America, particularly in the case of uh, Peru and Chile, I think I speak of young generations that are highly aware or interested in politics or at least in changing current conditions. And this is uh, a great example that uh, as students, as people that have the privilege of access in education, have to uh, internalize the fact that maybe, only maybe, developing nations can't uh, bring lessons or an example to the North. Great. 
Thank you so, so much, Professor Zarai and uh, Thomas for joining us today. And uh, thank you to our audience for listening on to today's uh, episode of Global Get Down. And we'll see you soon. Thank you so much.